turn to Acts chapter 7, and the kids, you all know what you're supposed to do. You're already doing it. That's great. Thanks for uh, helping me out. I almost forgot to announce that. Acts chapter 7. We'll be considering a passage of Scripture where, as Wally pointed out, God is seeing a faithful martyr face death. And we're going to see that even though God witnesses Stephen's mistreatment, and even though God allows it, God is still faithful. You know, at times we use our personal experiences, desires, circumstances as a barometer to assess whether or not God is faithful. If God doesn't meet some standard that we've created in our minds and doesn't follow through in the way that we hope that he would or think that he should, we will at times question the faithfulness of God. If we don't do it out loud, certainly we do it in our hearts. And what we find here in the book of Acts is a person who is faithful. When you look at Stephen's description in chapter 6, we find someone who was faithful in every way. He was led of God's Spirit. He was a man who was dedicated to prayer and serving others. Stephen exuded faithfulness. And yet, as he was faithfully carrying out what God had called him to do, we find that Stephen faced martyrdom, the ultimate sacrifice for serving God. Was God somehow unfaithful to Stephen's faithfulness? And I think our answer has to be a resounding no. But if we look at this, why did God allow this good man to be mistreated. In fact, as we look historically through the Old Testament, through the New Testament, throughout church history, and yes, even today around the world, why does God allow faithful, godly people to suffer at the hands of the unjust? We're going to see as we go into this passage that that is not the take that Stephen has on his own martyrdom. Stephen was delighted to sacrifice, yes, even his life for the Lord. And what we're going to see is this, that even when God brings a martyr home, that's the ultimate salvation, the ultimate deliverance. And that was certainly experienced by Stephen. So as we come to this seventh chapter... Bear in mind, we had seen Stephen brought before the Sanhedrin in the sixth chapter toward the end of it. We saw accusations hurtled against Stephen. They were accusing him of being a blasphemer. They were accusing him of stirring up an insurrection toward the temple and toward the law of Moses. And all of this was completely fabricated but they were directing these things against Stephen to build as strong a case as they could for his execution. When we come to the seventh chapter, though, we find, first of all, the message of Stephen. And what Stephen wants to communicate is this. God is faithful 
even when man is not. Now what we're going to find through much of the seventh chapter is a very prolonged recount of the history of Israel. And bear this in mind, Stephen had a purpose in each story that he selected, in the way that he told it, in the things that he highlighted. Stephen wanted to recap for these people the faithfulness of God and the fact that God is faithful even when man is not. But he also wanted to communicate something else. God was God before there was the law, before there was the temple. God was God. You see, many of the leaders in Stephen's day had more or less made the temple the core of their entire religion. They painted a picture that if you didn't come to the temple, that you couldn't know God. And so that was their operating thought process that they were imposing on the people and that the people listened to and believed. And Stephen was pointing out that things had changed because of Jesus the Messiah. And in fact, God never had the temple as the core, the center of their religion. It was always faith in God that brought about a relationship with him. And that's what we find as Stephen begins recounting history. In verses 2 through 8, we're going to see that God made covenants and worked outside the Holy Land. The Holy Land refers to Jerusalem and its environs. And what we want to see is, first of all, that God worked through Abraham, the father of all of these Jewish leaders, the one that they would respect and looked up to. God worked through Abraham, and we find that as he begins to recount for us here in verse 2 to the high priests, the history of Israel. So look at what he says here in this second verse. This he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. So as he addresses the Sanhedrin, notice he uses an endearing term. He calls them fathers and brothers. And then he goes on to discuss what God does. The glory of God appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. So God began his work with Abraham where? Outside of Jerusalem, apart from the temple, in a place that was a foreign land, not even the holy land, not even the promised land of Israel, God began to work with Abraham. And here's something amazing. God worked with someone who wasn't a part of that community around Jerusalem. Abraham was an idolater, probably. Abraham was a person from Mesopotamia, probably a Chaldean if he lived in that region. So here is this foreign man in a foreign land, and what did God do? God built a nation out of Abraham, not because of Abraham's personal performance, not because of a genetic connection that, some, that he had to someone else. It was God working through Abraham for God's own purpose. And that message must have resonated with these people who based all of their relationship with God on their national heritage and on the idea that they were in the promised land. 
What Stephen does is he goes back to Abraham, and what he shares with these people is amazing. It says here in the second verse, the God of glory appeared to Father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land that I will show you. As Abraham left this land and was obedient to God, God began to work in Abraham's life and in all of those who would be related to Abraham. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign land. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. What we find that Stephen begins to bring out in this text, and that the writer of Hebrews certainly brought out, is this. Abraham responded to God in faith. When God said, leave the land of the Chaldeans and go to this land that I have promised, Abraham went. And by faith, Abraham responded to what God had asked him to do, and God made covenants and promises with Abraham. So look at verse 4. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. And he gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. Now, here's the amazing thing about Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God for promises that would come well after his life. And he trusted God for what God said. Faith was his operating principle. And he depended on the word of God and on the promise of God. Look at verse 5. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at that time Abraham had no child. Do you see the faith of Abraham? No appearance of God answering what he had promised and yet absolute faith. Trusted in God. Waited on God. And understood that the promises that God would make would be fulfilled even though he was receiving those promises sight unseen. That is a picture of faith. But then he goes on in the sixth verse. And as we continue our lesson on Abraham from Stephen, he says, God spoke to him in this way, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation. They serve as slaves, God said, and afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. So what Stephen is doing is associating the promise of God that was made outside Jerusalem But what he was saying was God included even the Holy Land in Jerusalem in his plan. Rather than being someone who spoke against the temple, Stephen is saying the temple was indeed a part of God's plan in the past. And it was even established with Abraham. He was answering the false witnesses who had said that he had spoken against the temple. Then look at the 8th verse. 
Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. And later, Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. So Stephen is saying, look, the plan that God had for Israel was due to God's faithfulness. Faithfulness to the covenant that he had established with Abraham. And yes, Abraham placed his faith in that covenant, but the terms of that covenant being fulfilled was the faithfulness of God. And Abraham received blessing because he trusted God and placed his faith in him. Now, this must have been a message to these leaders on the Sanhedrin. Your relationship with God is not based on your observance of a bunch of man-made rules or even God-made rules because you break those. Your relationship with God is based on faith. And Stephen wanted them to understand that with clarity. But then we come to the next part of this history lesson. God moved to preserve His people through perilous times. When we come to verses 9 through 19, we find a recap of how trouble followed the followers of God. And how their faith in Him, again, working outside the region of the Holy Land, it was always on the basis of God's faithfulness. Look at what it says. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. You remember the story of Joseph. His brothers sold him as a slave. Joseph wound up in Egypt, and God blessed faithful Joseph. Notice it goes on to say God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He also made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. So here is Stephen recounting the faithfulness of God. And even in this land, far away from the temple, far away from Israel, God was at work to preserve and to protect his faithful. Then look at verse 11. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. So here is God's supernatural, sovereign work taking place again outside the temple, outside Jerusalem, as he protects his nation, Israel. Even under the thumb of the then-known superpower, Egypt, God was faithful. And Stephen wanted these people to understand that God had a purpose and a plan that was unfolding for the people of Israel because of his faithfulness to the covenant. So here they are, they're in this land, the whole family comes because of this need, because of this terrible famine that had taken place. And then look at verse 15, or 14. After this, Joseph sent for his family, Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. And then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb after Abraham had brought from their sons of Hamor, 
and Shechem for a certain sum of money. And as for the time, as the time drew near for God to fulfill His promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt greatly increased. Then another king who knew nothing about Joseph became the ruler of Egypt. And he dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. So here is God again being faithful. Terrible things were happening to the children of Israel and yet God preserved them as a nation because they were a part of God's promise. But then we come to the next part of the passage. When we come to this next verse, we find that God's messengers face rejection. And they always have. Look at verse 20. At that time Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months he was cared for in his father's house. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her son. And Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and in action. We find that, first of all, Stephen introduces us to Moses. Now, remember, one of the accusations against Stephen in the sixth chapter was that he disrespected Moses. And yet, what do we find? Stephen is giving an account of Moses that is accurate. He shares with us that Moses was protected and preserved by God himself, and that God was the one who saw to him growing and developing even under a pagan pharaoh in a pagan household. And yet, then we come to the 23rd verse, and we start to see a change that took place in Moses. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. And he saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptians. So the story of Moses is continuing to unfold. And what we find with Moses is this. Even though he was raised in a pagan ruler's household, what happened? He connected with the people of God because he connected with God himself. The writer of Hebrews says this, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses had this character that God had developed in him. Moses was faithful to God, but God was faithful to Moses. And again, outside the temple, outside the land of Israel that the Sanhedrin clung to as their connection with God. So then we come to an interesting twist in the story. Moses defended an Israelite. Then, verse 25, Moses thought that his own people should realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The story of Stephen begins to pivot now. 
rather than talking about the history of Israel in general, now he starts to talk about the history of Israel in particular. And the area that he wants to key in on is this. Israel has always turned away the messengers and the servants of God. And we can see this with Moses. Moses sought to protect an Israelite, and when it was witnessed by other Israelites, when Moses stepped up to lead, they rejected him. Look at verse 26. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And when Moses heard this, he fled to Midian where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. So again, Moses circumvents the Holy Land. He goes from Egypt to Midian. Not in the Holy Land. And there God continues to develop him into his choice servant. But why did he go to Midian from Egypt? Because of the rejection of the people. Then look at verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. Now is Mount Sinai in Israel? No. Well outside Israel. And once again, God speaks. So verse 31 When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to look more closely. And as he heard the Lord's voice, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare look. And then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Now again, this holy ground. Not in Israel. Not in Jerusalem. God is working outside the environs of the Holy Land. And then God said to Moses, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard the groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. And that's what God did. Because when we come to the 35th verse, it says, this is the same Moses whom they rejected with their words. God sent Moses from Midian back to Egypt. And remember the response of the people when Moses initially came back. What was the response? You've brought more trouble on us than we had before. They rejected him. So here is God's messenger, Moses, directly sent by God, and the people rejected him. Does that sound like anyone else to you? The Messiah. The Lord Jesus Christ, sent directly by God, and yet rejection by the people. Here, Stephen wanted them to begin to think about their own rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and how God had sent him, just as he had sent Moses, and how they were rejecting Jesus, just as the people had rejected Moses. And then look at verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they rejected with their words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. 
through the angel who appeared to him in the bush, he led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. So what happened? Look at verse 37. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. Now why would Stephen isolate that verse? Because Jesus was the fulfillment of what Moses had said. Jesus was the promised prophet that Moses had mentioned. And he's building his case as he talks to the Sanhedrin. And he's telling them at some point, you rejected this Messiah, this promised prophet. Verse 38. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers. And he received living words to pass on to us. And then, 39, but our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Now the story's really starting to turn. Stephen is recounting for them the faithfulness of God, but now his emphasis is the faithfulness or faithlessness of God's people. And they evidenced their faithlessness by the way they treated God's faithful. So look at verse 40. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time they made an idol from the form of a calf. Remember, while Moses was on Mount Sinai getting the Ten Commandments, the people were down making a graven image, one that they had worshipped, no doubt, in Egypt, turning away from God, turning toward this graven image. Remember what Aaron said when Moses came down. We threw the gold in and out popped this calf. Right? So they were faithless, not depending on God. Look at verse 42. But God turned away, gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. And by the way, gave them over is a damning statement. You know what it means? The worst thing in the world is when God says, okay, you can have your own way, you can do your own thing. And that's what God let these faithless people do. He gave them over to the worship of heavenly bodies. And what we find is that would be the worship of the stars, the planets. And God allowed them to go into that as the people in the surrounding communities worshipped these. The children of Israel joined with them. And then it goes on to say this. Now listen. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Do not bring me sacrifices and offerings. Forty years in the desert, O house of Israel, you have lifted up the shrine of Moloch. Moloch was a detestable god in the Old Testament who required infant sacrifice or causing children to walk through the fire. Horrible God. And star of your God, Rephon, the idols you made to worship, therefore I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. 
So here is this testimony of how they had rejected person after person. But then when we come to verse 44, we find that Stephen really cuts to the chase. The Most High does not live in houses made by men. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. So again, outside Jerusalem, outside the Holy Land, for 40 years they're traveling with this tabernacle. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them. And when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them, it remained in the land until the time of David. So the point that Stephen is making is profound. God has not been worshipped in the same place, in the same way, throughout the history of Israel. There have been changes. And so his point to them is they have missed the most significant change. And that is to worship his Messiah, the one that he sent. We know that David, verse 46, enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. So again, transitioning from the tabernacle to the temple, another change. But here's the significant part of this whole story. Verse 48, however, the Most High, don't you love that as a description of God? The Most High, He is God. Far above us, far above any system, He is the Most High, and He does not live in houses made by men. Remember the story in John 4 of Jesus talking to the woman at the well? And the woman at the well observed, we worship God here, you Jews worship Him in Jerusalem. Anybody remember what Jesus' response to this woman was? In John chapter 4, when Jesus responded, He let her know that worship of God has nothing to do with geography. In verse 23, he said this, a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Jesus gave this message about the temple and about worship, and he was rejected for it, even murdered for it. In verse 49, Stephen quotes from Isaiah, and he says this, Heaven is my throne, this is God speaking, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? God is above any temple, any tabernacle, any region 
any people. God is God. But then we come to the kicker. As we come to verse 51, we find that Stephen calls the leadership of Israel on what they did to Jesus. In verse 51, it says this, You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. In other words, okay, folks, just in case you haven't caught my point, let me talk about you. You know, there's a tendency on all of our part, isn't there, where we look at people who have messed up in the past and we say, wow, that person really messed up. I'm, I'd never do that. There's no way I would respond in that way to the things of God. Isn't it interesting that even the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin would have said that same thing, right? But here they are, and God is calling them out. First of all, a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Stiff-necked means they won't bow their head before God. They won't submit to who God is. They are stubborn in their own outlook, and they will just not bow their head before God. The uncircumcised hearts and ears carries with it the idea that these people are refusing, absolutely refusing to respond to God and follow the covenant that God had established with them. And part of that covenant was the promise of the coming Messiah. They rejected that Messiah. And so they had uncircumcised hearts and their ears were not ready to listen to God. Look at the next statement. You always resist the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God had been working on their hearts through the ministry of Jesus, through the ministry of the apostles, through Stephen's sermon. The Holy Spirit was speaking to their hearts saying, repent. Turn from your resistance and embrace God's truth. But they resisted. And then look at verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. Go through the Old Testament and prophet after prophet after prophet martyred for speaking the truth. But then he turns to them. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it. They murdered the Messiah, the promised one of God. So here is Stephen not defending himself but calling them to task for their sin and rejection of Messiah. Now that took courage. But bear this in mind, Stephen did that under the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This isn't Stephen back in their face just because he wanted to resist what they were saying and rebel against them as leaders. This was Stephen, spokesman for God, given this message by the Holy Spirit himself. And so here he is, and you know, I believe that perhaps Stephen's sermon would have continued 
but it was more than the crowd could stand. And as we come to verse 44, we see the martyrdom of Stephen, one who was faithful to the end. And what I want us to do is very quickly walk through this. This will move much faster than the message of Stephen. And let's look at what happened. First of all, we find that mercy and strength come from God. Here is Stephen in the face of horrible, horrible opposition. Persecution and hatred like none other, just exuding from every pore of their bodies. They're directing this to Stephen. And notice verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and they gnashed their teeth at him. You can just picture the anger on the faces of these men as they see faithful Stephen being a witness for Jesus the Messiah with courage and conviction, and yet their response is anger. They hated what Stephen was saying. But then look at verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, I don't know if everyone is given the opportunity to have a glimpse into heaven, but we do know in this case Stephen did. This is not hyperbole. This isn't somebody with a vision that didn't really take place. This is the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God, and this is something that actually happened. And Stephen's vision is amazing. God gave this faithful martyr a glimpse into heaven, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, normally when we see Jesus described in that throne room, He's seated at the right hand of God, but here is Jesus standing as if to welcome Stephen, soon to be martyred. And then we see tranquility and peace and hope on the part of Stephen, but we see mayhem and murder on the minds of the opposition, because look at verse 57. At this they covered their ears, yelling at the top of their voices, and rushed at him. Do you see the contrast? Here is Stephen, peaceful, hopeful, reliant on God. Here are the persecutors, the opposition, angry, almost like they were putting their hands over their ears because they didn't want to hear anymore. And they were so angry that they were screaming. If you ever talk to someone and they just la, 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 It was worse than that. They were screaming so that they wouldn't hear the conviction that they were feeling in their hearts from the Spirit of God. They resisted to that extent. And then rather than considering how they should respond, they dragged him out to the city and they began to stone him. Stoning would be such a horrible death. To have your body bludgeoned again and again and again, not by little stones, like at the side of the road, but rocks. Hurled with such velocity that they would have to take off their cloaks so that they could get more on it. And there, off to the side where their cloaks were laying, there's Paul, known as Saul at that point, guarding the cloaks. And so this intense hatred is vented as they hurl these stones at Stephen. But then we come 
to verses 59 and 60, where we see moments of pain are overcome by a mind of peace. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell to his knees and cried, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Stephen died. But even as he faced death, he knew where his spirit was going. Verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then in his dying breath, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Imagine what that would have done to you as a witness of this. The Apostle Paul would later write to the Philippians that we are to be in no way frightened by those who oppose us. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. Their hatred and venom was a sign of their own destruction. Last part of the passage, and with this we close. Men with even the hardest of hearts can be transformed by the witness of a martyr. You know, our word martyr is actually the Greek word for witness. And we find Saul mentioned in two verses. In 58, he's mentioned as the person who was standing over the clothes of those who were casting stones at Stephen. And then in verse 1 of chapter 8, Saul was there giving approval to his death. Do you know, I believe that that was a part of God breaking the hardened soil of Saul's heart. Because by his own testimony in Acts chapter 22, it says this, Lord, these men know that I went from synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you, and the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed. I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. A part of Saul, who had become Paul's testimony, and he was transformed in part by the witness of this faithful martyr. What we find in Stephen's martyrdom is still the faithfulness of God. God was faithful to call him home, to deliver him ultimately from the persecution and suffering that he faced day in and day out. From this side, it looks like the martyr has lost, that it's a tragedy. But from God's side, God says this is a triumph. We don't know who was influenced by the witness and the testimony of Stephen. But we do know this, God's faithfulness was still on display. We can't put God in a box that we build and say, God, function in this way or you're not being faithful. We must, and I repeat this, must see that God is faithful and trust him no matter the outcome. Now, normally we close in a song, but I've kept you a little longer this morning than anticipated. Thanks, Jess. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) But what I'd like us to do right now is just stand And I'd like for us to close in prayer. And listen, I I tease Jess, but I'm thankful for what God did.